0: Good morning, West Bulls. How are you? Well, wow, you sound good. That's fantastic. Please, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. Last week, we took a step back. We climbed a hill overlooking the Bible, overlooking Genesis through Revelation, overlooking this book of Acts. In order to gain some perspective, I hope, in order to make sure, if you remember, we don't miss the forest for the trees. We reviewed uh, how Acts 1-11 through fits, how it fits into God's great plan of salvation for all nations. We reviewed how God, in fact, always intended, since the beginning, to use Israel as His means and His witness to reach all nations with the news that He and He alone is God. And we saw how Luke, our author of Acts, is building, building toward that moment in Acts 13 when the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, literally sets sail across the Mediterranean with Paul and Barnabas to the ends of the earth. Beginning especially in Acts 8, Luke really ups that foreshadowing. We reviewed last week how Luke even seems to be lining everyone up through Acts 8, 9, 10, and 11 along the literal borders of Israel. Believers indwelt with the Holy Spirit and ready to make that leap to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Before we get there, before we take that leap, however, before we set sail with Paul and Barnabas in Acts 13... Luke closes this first part of Acts, Act 1 of Acts, I guess you could say, with an intriguing chapter, the chapter you have before you, Acts 12. One commentator I looked at this week said of Acts 12, At first sight, it's unnecessary to the developing theme of the expansion of the church. Had it been omitted, he writes, we should not have noticed the loss. One important question, then, is to ask why, I think. Why did Luke choose to give Acts 12 at this vital moment in time, at this critical point in the story? I'd like to wrestle with that together with you, with that question for the next oh, couple of Sundays. Why Luke? Why Acts 12? Three Principal figures are mentioned in Acts chapter 12. You can see them on the screen together with our upcoming Sunday schedule, at least. They're Herod, James, and Peter. Today we're going to focus on Herod primarily, and then in two weeks after Father's Day, we'll focus on James and Peter. It doesn't take long in Acts chapter 12 to trip over Herod, his name introduces the chapter practically. Take a look at verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. Now before we read any further and finish part of the story of Acts 12, a little history might help us out. I say might because I'm going to take um, a fire hydrant approach with you a bit this morning. I'm going to open just a tiny window, but a powerful amount of water is going to gush out at you in the form of historical information. Just a tiny window into that Herod dynasty of the first century. And it can feel at first a bit overwhelming, but two things. Number one, I have great confidence in you this morning, okay? And number two, I'm not expecting you to catch and remember every detail, I want you to feel the fire hydrant of it, just to give you a taste of what Herod is all about. So hang in there. If you're wondering, where's he going with all of this historical fact and detail? I'm lost. What am I here for today? Things like that. I will do my best to tie it together at the end. If you do your best to hang with me, at least through that part. Do we have a deal? Okay, good. Ten of you agreed. That's okay. Okay. I'll go with ten. When you read about Herod, whether in the Bible or in history books, you always need to ask which one? Which Herod? Because Herod is used as both a name and a title. And it gets real confusing real fast because, let me tell you, there's a whole heap of Herods running amok through this time period of the Gospel and Acts, okay? This slide of the Herod family tree We'll give you an idea. Never mind that you can't read it. And yes, there will be a quiz on the way out on this chart at the end of the service this morning. I just want you to see visually how involved the Herods were during a critical, critical time, not only in the history of the world, but especially in the history of the church. There is far more there, my friends, to learn From Herod to learn about Herod. There's far more there about this Herod factor than simply the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. There's a deeper message there I think explaining why God mentions him so much, his family. Speaking of Bethlehem, the first Herod that we meet in the Bible is Herod the Great and he is indeed the Christmas Herod. The one that the wise men went to meet. The one who tried to kill Jesus when he was only two years old. Now that Herod, Herod the Great, is long dead by the time we get to Acts 12. He's not the Acts 12 Herod. Herod the Great, the Christmas Herod, died in 4 B.C. And Acts 12 takes place almost 50 years later. So Herod the Great is dead. When he died, his kingdom was divided among three of his sons. And let me just mention in passing, it's extraordinary that Herod the Great even had any sons to survive him. Because Herod the Great killed so many of them. He killed his own sons because he thought they were out to get him. If you look at history, maybe some were. Most didn't seem to really be. But Herod was so paranoid, this Herod the Great, he killed them anyway. One historian, his name is Josephus, he tells us that Caesar Augustus, if that name rings a bell, it's the same Augustus who called that census that we also read about at Christmas. Caesar Augustus and Herod the Great were best buddies. But even Augustus finally had to admit of his friend Herod, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son is a quote from Caesar Augustus. Herod the Great was notorious for killing even his own sons. Interesting contrast, isn't it, between Herod the Great who killed his own sons to preserve his own power and God, the true King, who sacrificed his son Jesus in order that He might give Him all the power together to those who believe in His name. Interesting contrast, isn't it? Maybe we'll talk more about that at Christmas or Easter sometime, all right? In any event, when Herod the Great died, his three sons took over after him. Those three sons, you see their names on the screen, Antipas, Archelaus, and Philip. All three of these Herods are mentioned in the Gospels. Archelaus and Philip by name. Interesting that Antipas, his name never appears in Scripture. He's only referred to as Herod the Tetrarch. Say Tetrarch. Every once in a while I lapse into Bible class. Sorry. Um, Herod the Tetrarch, Tetrarch means sort of king. So it's kind of funny that Antipas, when he's mentioned in in the Bible, it literally says, and then Herod the sort of king. God has a sense of humor. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. But none of these Herods. However, are the Herod of Acts 12? I told you they were running amok. It's a great word, amok, isn't it? Yeah. I know you all want to say, okay, say amuck. Okay, good. <laughs> the Herod of Acts 12 is in fact Herod Agrippa I. Okay? In short, Agrippa I is Herod the Great's grandson. Not through Antipas, Archelaus, or Philip, but through a different son, of Herod the Great. Okay? How are we doing so far? Fire hydrant hitting you? Hang in there. I'm almost done with this part. (laughs) Agrippa was born in 10 B.C., and he took his grandfather's throne, Herod the Great's throne, in 37 A.D., several years after Jesus ascended to heaven. Now, Agrippa got the throne because as a boy, he was best buddies with a boy named Gaius Caligula. Historians in here might recognize that name. Gaius Caligula, Herod's boyhood friend, Agrippa's boyhood friend, Caligula grew up to become Caesar. It's really nice when your best friend grows up to become emperor of the world. At least it was for Herod. Emperor Caligula gave Agrippa his start in Israel, and then Agrippa's territory was expanded by the next Caesar, Caesar Claudius, who was very grateful to Agrippa for Agrippa's help in making sure Claudius was Caesar when Caligula died. All right, end of so much history. Do you have all that? Well, I I really don't, so you're doing better than me. I don't expect you to have all that, as I've said, but here's what I'd like you to remember as we go forward this morning. Number one, Herod Agrippa I, a grandson of Herod the Great, that's the Herod of Acts 12. Number two, More importantly, perhaps, the Herods were very, very powerful and well-connected with Rome. I mean, to Caesars, in fact, Agrippa and his grandfather in particular were tight with those emperors of Rome, of the known world, really. If you were alive, if you and I were alive during the Herod dynasty, and you heard Herod's name, if you were favorable in Herod's eyes, you were really impressed if you worried about Herod, you were deeply distressed. Okay? That name Herod was synonymous with the political power or might of the world. Okay? So those two things. Now, that wasn't too bad after all, was it? So when we read in Acts 12, verse 1, that King Herod arrested some of the early believers, that should really stand out. No doubt that Luke intended that to jump at us out of this text. If we were living in Jerusalem at the time and we heard Herod was getting after the early church, we'd go, ooh, or something like that. Wow, the early church is in for it now. I mean, if you thought the, Sanhan- the Sanhedrin, who if you thought that... The Sanhedrin who arrested Peter and John way back in the beginning of Acts was powerful. If you thought that Saul, later became Paul, who you thought, if you thought Saul was all big and bad when he went after Stephen and those others, that's nothing compared to King Herod now stepping into the persecution of the early church. A comparison today it would be like the difference between getting into trouble with mall security at Southwest Plaza and getting into trouble with the FBI, okay? This is a big step up that Luke gives us in terms of persecution or threat of persecution right before the Gospel leaves Israel. Check it out. Luke begins his Gospel of Luke by making sure that we know that a King Herod, world power, is there, large and in charge, at the very time of John the Baptist. You see his dad's name, Zechariah. Herod is the one large and in charge at the very time of Jesus' birth. And now Luke introduces the second part of Acts, his account of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, by making sure we know again that a king Herod, at least, is large and in charge. Do you think the happening of Jesus being born do you think the happening or the about to happen of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, do you think that great movement, those two great movements of God, has the attention of the evil one? Have the attention? Do you think it's a coincidence that Luke mentions that Herod, all big and bad, comes up and is mentioned right there, right when God's about to do something big? I don't think that's a coincidence. I doubt it. We'll ask Luke someday. All right. With that background in mind, let's go ahead and finish the story, beginning again with 12, verse 1. And I'll make some shorter observations, hopefully, along the way. Acts 12, verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now, this is not the James who wrote the book of James. It's not James, the younger brother of Jesus. It's James, the son of Zebedee, okay, one of the disciples. You may recall that Jesus nicknamed these two brother disciples, James and John. You remember what Jesus' nickname for them was when he was walking? Very good. He called them sons of thunder. We don't know for sure, but that could be why James got himself into trouble with Herod, right? I mean, I doubt very much that someone Jesus called when he saw him, hey, There's the son of thunder. I doubt very much that that person was the soft, timid, non-confrontational, quiet type. Who knows? It may be why he's the very first of the apostles that are martyred for his trust and faith in Jesus Christ, because he was indeed a son of thunder. Continuing at verse 3, when he saw, Herod, when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to um, Sees Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We need to be careful whenever we come across in Scripture that very general term, the Jews. Okay? That general term is very often throughout the New Testament used to describe a particular group of Jews. Jews in leadership circles. And it's not often intended to describe all Jews. We know this because the Bible also tells us thousands of Jews were at least sympathetic toward Jesus and his teaching when he was here. And every church historian recognizes, at least in the very early church, it was Jews that, well, they didn't line the pews, (coughs) but it was Jews. It was Jewish believers that made up most of the early church. And so in the context here of Herod Agrippa and Acts 12, the Jews he's trying to please are probably the rich and powerful. Jews like the Sadducees. Jews like the ones who ran the Sanhedrin. Other politically influential Jews. Jews who like Herod. Or at least liked the favor of Rome that Herod brought with him as king. You can really see, can't you, Herod the politician showing up in verse 3? I mean, Like his grandfather Herod the Great, Agrippa is really eager to do anything to keep the rich and powerful, to keep his political power base happy with him. And so no different here. Verse 4, After arresting him, Peter, Herod put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Interesting, isn't it, that Luke bothers to tell us when Peter is arrested. Peter's arrested by Herod and scheduled for trial during the same time Pilate and the Sanhedrin had Jesus arrested and tried. Big things happen during Passover, yes? Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Next time we'll look more in detail about what happens to Peter in prison. But for this morning, just know that Peter miraculously escapes, much to the dismay of Herod Agrippa. Let's pick up the story again in verse 19. After Herod had a thorough search made for him, he looked for Peter, who had miraculously escaped, and didn't find him, typical Herod coming up here, He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed, 16 of them, dead, just like his grandpa. If he perceived a threat to his politics, to his might, the sword was always, always, always right there for Herod. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon, from Phoenicia, just to the north. And those Tyre and Sidon people now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, which has got to be one of the all-time great biblical names, it's like to be known as Blastus. (laughs) Having secured the support of Blastus, say Blastus, I know you want to, Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country, Judea, for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. The historian Josephus, interestingly enough, also writes about this speech. This public address of Herod Agrippa. Did you know? It's one of those countless times where history supports exactly and affirms what the Bible says. Isn't that cool? Josephus gives us some additional details that Luke doesn't. Among them, Josephus tells us that the reason Herod is in Caesarea is in order to conduct games in honor of Caesar. Think Olympics. The Herods were big into the Olympics. And so Herod Agrippa is sort of the master of ceremonies in Caesarea, the great town that his grandfather made and coated with marble. Some of you remember back to last Christmas. And he's there to run these Olympic Games in honor of Caesar. And on day two of these those Olympic Games... Josephus tells us that Herod makes his speech. He tells us the speech takes place in the theater at Caesarea. Those of you who have been to Caesarea right now are picturing that outdoor theater, right? It's been even restored today. And we're also told that Herod's royal robes, in Josephus' words, were made holy of silver silver. Solid silver royal robes. I keep Thinking of the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz. I, I'm sure it looked a little bit nicer than that. And Josephus tells us that when the sun reflected off of his robes that morning, as he sat in his throne, Josephus tells us that the very sight of Herod shining there in his silver suit inspired fear and awe in all who saw him. Verse 22. They shouted, the people who had just heard Herod make his speech, they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Herod must have been quite a talented public speaker, yes? Josephus also tells us that the people cried out that Agrippa was a god. Josephus adds this, they also cried out, be you merciful to us. For although we have yet reverenced you only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own you as superior to mortal nature, they shouted. Josephus then adds, Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. The Bible puts it this way in verse 23, Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God... For his talented speech, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus tells the story this way. But as he presently afterwards looked up, Herod Agrippa, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings. And Herod fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain also arose in his belly for five days and began in a most violent manner. Josephus says, Herod was carried back into his palace from the theater that morning. And then he writes, And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly, he departed this life, being in 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 24 But the Word of God continued to increase and spread. Back to our original question this morning. Why does Luke include Acts 12 at this critical point in his story? We've already talked about a few reasons. First, in my opinion, Luke is foreshadowing that what's about to happen is big. The gospel exploding out of Israel to the ends of the earth is a big, big deal with universal ramifications. And Luke underlines just how big a deal that is, how big Acts 13 through 28 is, is going to be. He highlights that in at least two ways. One, Luke mentions Herod here in Acts 12 immediately before Paul and Barnabas set sail. And what does Luke compare that to then, perhaps? Well, Luke mentions Herod in his gospel immediately before Jesus is born. Do we hear, Luke, something big happened when Jesus was born, yes? And something big is about to happen as the gospel spreads. Herod's here, too, trying to stop it. Two, Luke tells of Peter being arrested for trial during Passover and unleavened bread, just like Jesus was arrested for trial during these same festivals where ironically enough, God's people are celebrating their deliverance from Egypt and pleading that God would send the one to save them. During that outcry of prayer, Herod, he kills James, and then Herod throws Peter, gets rid of two people who are in fact trying to bring the answer of that prayer to the people. That's Herod constantly trying to get In God's way second reason for acts 12 I think and we'll spend a little more time what time we have left on this one Luke shows one powerful way that God really encouraged Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Peter and Priscilla and Lydia and all the rest who carried the gospel to the ends of the earth who got out of their chairs and went here's how this is encouraging I think what happens ultimately to those who take the credit that God and God alone deserves? What happens ultimately to the so-called rich and powerful in this world, world who don't know the Lord? What happens to those who really seem so amazing on the outside? To those who, who shine like silver in the sun of worldly power but fail to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do you catch the irony of how Herod Agrippa dies? There he stands, shining like silver in the sun. He is the mighty Herod Agrippa, powerful, successful grandson of Herod the Great, friend of Caesar's. On the outside, he looks every bit his grandfather, Herod the Great, who, by the way, died a very similar death. How does Agrippa die? Do you notice? His insides are literally rotten to the core. The Bible says he was eaten by worms. Josephus says he had one huge tummy ache. Now, both descriptions in first century literature, eaten by worms and and having a pain in the belly, it's a way to talk about what's going on inside. It's used as a metaphor in first century literature. Both descriptions also have direct links to maybe what we would call heart. Your stomach and your heart were really the same thing in first century thought and understanding. How so? Well, both would be used interchangeably to describe your appetite and your desire. Okay? Your focus, your heart or your belly. That's what you were after. That's what you were about. That's what you had appetite and desire and passion for. Your heart or belly is where that came from. And so Herod dies because his insides are rotten to the core, or more specifically, because his heart was not right with God. His appetite or desire was not for God, but rather his desire was for himself. You can clearly see that in this context. He kills James. It's like, oh, does that make me more popular? It's like, oh, if they like that, wait till they see what I do to Peter. Throws Peter in prison. Oh, does that make me more popular? Gets up and gives this speech. You are a God. And I just, yeah, yes I am. Do you see where his focus is on self? Even at the point of taking credit as a God. And God sends a huge message here. That path ultimately ends in death and destruction. Luke tells a remarkable story of what happens ultimately to any person or any culture or system or religion or belief or understanding or way of life. What happens to anyone or anything that is all about self rather than all about God in short death. Looking out for number one, trying to do it our way rather than God's way is a dead end. Even if outward appearances for now or for a time seem to suggest otherwise. And that, I think, is part of the kernel of encouragement for those early believers. It's almost as if Luke is saying, you know, no matter how impressive you find Greece and Rome and its gods when you get over there, No matter how powerful they seem, no matter how many times you're thrown into prison, shipwrecked or stoned, no matter what that pagan, me, me, me worldview throws at you, ultimately God will prevail. So keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. Keep standing. Don't stop. God will prevail. Amen? Amen? On the eve of sending the gospel to the ends of the earth, Luke gives an account of the stunning fall of an amazing, powerful man and family and worldview who had every turn for decades, for millennia, but for decades then, Herod tried to get in God's way. You don't think Peter and Paul and all those early believers who later ran into guys like Herod didn't like retell this story to themselves? You don't think they looked back on this event with hope? I'll bet they did. I'll bet it helped encourage them. I'll bet it helped them to sing psalms and hymns while chained in prisons. I'll bet it helped them to keep going no matter what. And one big P.S. this morning, a big one. Many of you, I'm sure, are already making connections to our own life and witness as leading, breathing gospel messengers today. We, of course, face the same call to keep going, no matter the pain and persecution that comes. And I hope we, too, are encouraged that ultimately every obstacle, even one as big and bad as Herod, will be removed. But allow me to make that connection between those early believers and us. Allow me to make that connection tighter, especially the early believers to us in particular, given our time and particular culture. When those early believers went west with the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they got to Asia Minor and Greece and Rome, among the things they found was unbelievable idolatry, unbelievable focus ultimately on me, me, me. You especially see the me, me, me focus in all those Greek and Roman gods and goddesses in all their temples. How? How? Have you ever noticed how all those gods and goddesses are essentially big people? I mean, none of them are perfect. They all struggle with sin. They're just big, blown-up people. Zeus and Artemis to take just two. Gods of power for Zeus. Gods of fertility or sexuality in Artemis. And they're just bigger than life, pumped up versions of humanity. Great big people. See a picture of some of them. That one in the lower right corner, that's an altar to Zeus. It's shaped like a throne. That's Zeus's throne. The Germans took it from Pergamum to the Berlin Museum. Great big people. And you know, that's really what all idolatry at its heart truly is. Self-worship of a sort. Worship of bigger, faster, stronger versions of ourselves. This was Herod's mistake. He bought into a worldview of self-focus rather than God-focus. And he was doomed. This was also the mistake of all those who worshipped at those pagan temples. Worshipping bigger versions of themselves rather than giving all the credit to the true and the living God. And all of that was doomed until it was transformed by the gospel. And how about us today? What about our time and culture? We may not have Zeus and Artemis and the like to worship as bigger versions of ourselves, but do we have other bigger versions of ourselves that we tend to worship? I was reflecting on that question this past week. Who or what are our idols of self Today, where are the idols of self in our culture? Who or what are the Zeus and Artemis of our day? I was standing in the kitchen sorting in the mail, sorting the mail, right? Uh, Almost every, lots of uh, insight comes when you're standing in the kitchen, right? And I'm sorting the mail and I'm thinking about who Zeus and Artemis is of our day. And I come across in the mail, the most recent Sports Illustrated. And here it is. If you can't see from where you are, I'll put a picture up in a minute. Not yet. It's LeBron James. And I looked at LeBron James, and I don't know why. It struck me. It doesn't say it on the cover, but it struck me, ah, that's the guy they call the king. And then my son, Ben, who came through, said, yeah, Dad, they not, they not only call him the king, at least when he was drafted, they called him the chosen one. And I said, oh, really? And that began to bug me a little bit. And I kind of looked at it, and I didn't didn't open it quite yet, and I thought, you know, LeBron is not the king. He's not the chosen one. Not really. There's only one king. His name is Jesus. Amen? And then I almost threw the magazine aside, but I couldn't resist. I flipped open the magazine to the feature article on LeBron. The feature article on King James. And when I read the title of that article, when I flipped to the title of that article, I just about flipped. I'll show you the article on the screen in just a second. But before I do, ask yourself, is athletics an idol of our culture? Are we as fascinated with athletes as the Greeks were with their big and powerful gods because they seem to be, at least on the outside, bigger, better, pumped-up versions of themselves? Do we worship athletes in that way? Do we worship them, you know, in a way at least by giving them our time and our money and our passion? Okay, here's the title page of the King James article. Yeah, for our online listeners, the title is His Kingdom Come. I I like went nuts. I can't believe this! I started saying, "Look at this!" You know, my wife Jill came running. She thought I cut myself, you know, slicing carrots or something in the kitchen. What? 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 I said, "Look at this!" And I don't know. It's like, well, it's just a phrase, and you know, they don't really mean it. Does that make it any less offensive? At least any less threatening? that we casually you know, refer to and use as metaphors, things that have deep, significant... There's no one's kingdom that's going to come other than Jesus' kingdom. Yes? And we take that truth and we throw it out there because it's a catchy sports metaphor. We live in a culture that is called golfer Arnold Palmer, the king. We've called rock stars, Elvis Presley and Michael Jackson, the king. All my students want to talk about, not all they want to talk about, but a lot of what they want to talk about, is a show called, of all things, American Idol. And you say, Todd, it's just a word. Is it? Our fascination with celebrities... With the rich and powerful, the seductive, I could spend all day on our culture's fascination with sex. We'll do that sometime in the future when Paul does, I promise. Our fascination with celebrity in our country is astounding, and we spend billions on them. We spend time keeping up with who they're seeing or dating or what pictures are being taken or the stories of their lives. And... Did you ever notice those stories read a whole lot like any Greek or God or goddess mythology you want to pick up? Are we drunk on this sort of celebrity worship or what? We fill their temples. We don't call them temples. We call them stadiums and theaters and websites, and we fill them. And we give a large measure, don't we, of our glory and honor and praise. Now, to be sure, it's possible to be on fire for God and also participate in and be interested in sports and politics and theater and the like. In fact, we need to be interested and involved in those things if we have any chance at being salt and light there, any chance at reaching our culture for God. So hear me. And we should be encouraged that when we go into that realm, given Acts 12 as well as Genesis through Revelation We should be encouraged that the gospel will win out ultimately. But I wonder, in addition to an encouragement in Acts 12, is is there a little Herod Agrippa in us and in our culture? Is there a warning here for us too? Has our interest and participation in those things crossed the line to idolatry and even worship? Have they captured our bellies? Our hearts. My kids have many sports jerseys. Mostly Pittsburgh Steelers. Detroit Tigers, Red Wings. Yes, it gets worse. And yes, Detroit Pistons. Maybe that's why I'm so upset with LeBron James and his article. I don't know. And let me just say... I. My attack is not on LeBron James. I hope it's not taken that way. He doesn't call himself the chosen or the king. I have no idea where he is with God. I hope he knows the Lord as his personal Savior. It's our culture that raises these people on this pedestal, isn't it? And even though things like sports and theater are not evil in and of themselves, even if there are redeeming qualities involved there, life lessons to be learned, fellowship to be had, We need to guard our hearts when we're there, don't we? We need to be sure our kids and others not only hear, but also see and experience that our passion for God, our love for Jesus and our neighbors, our passion for intense intense obedience and love of God and love of others, they need to know that Jesus is our deepest desire and passion. And I can't help but wonder whether Recent statistics about younger generations falling away from traditional church models. I can't help but wonder, is it because they no longer know that the passion for God is in God's people? We talk the talk. That's easy. But do we joyfully, eagerly, passionately walk the tough, tough walk of lives given in sacrifice to God and others? Do they know that that's the church of Jesus Christ? When we don't walk it, when our number one passion is not all out love of God and others, people notice, especially our kids, they catch it immediately. And I wonder if they figure, well, this isn't real. And they go after the same worldly passions that maybe they see in us. Maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Maybe I'm overstating it. Maybe I'm I'm making too much out of nothing. Maybe. But maybe not. What chance do you suppose that the gospel has to transform a culture that worships self? Well, there is good news. There is hope. As Acts 12 foreshadows... When we read the rest of Acts, indeed, when we read the rest of the New Testament, you will see, we will see that the gospel of Jesus Christ transformed a self-absorbed culture nearly identical to ours today. And my question that I ask myself and that I think we need to be asking ourselves, West Bulls Community Church, is this. If then... If the gospel transformed a self absorbed culture then, why not now? Twelve apostles, add another dozen to include Paul and his disciples. Twenty, thirty people went to the most vile pagan. Self absorbed, and in two generations, history records Asia Minor, Greece, Turkey went from 90% pagan to 90% following the true and the living God. 24 people. How many do we have in here today? More than 24. So, if then, why not now? Is it because we've lost our focus? Is it because whatever it was that tempted Herod is getting into us? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for putting on your servant's heart, Luke, Acts 12, and giving us a picture, both an encouragement and a warning, about what happens ultimately to a person, a culture absorbed and pointing to self rather than to the true and living Lord, Jesus Christ. Father, would you help us to fight the temptation that got a hold of Herod Agrippa? Would you help us individually as a church, as a country, to take that hard, hard step of repentance and turning our back to the allure of the seemingly powerful, self-absorbed way of life. Would you help us, beginning today, beginning right now, through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, instill in us, stoke into flame, that fire, that passion in us that keeps our focus solely on Jesus Christ and love of God and love of others. Oh, Father, help us Father, we love you. Thank you for reminding us that ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that matters and the only thing that will last. We ask all of this in the precious, precious name of the one true King, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And all God's people said, Amen.